Hey, what's up, family and friends? This is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of Indiana's Black Forest region, uh, and also the host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. One of the things that we set out to do on the show was to occasionally bring you some very special, very unique bonus content. As you heard earlier this season, we did an episode with my daughter, Penny Marie Bishop, all about unicorns. And we wanted to give you a couple of extra bonus episodes this season. Something in the middle of the week to sort of put a little pep in your step during the spooky season. One of the really cool things that's been happening in Washington County in the past couple years is that there's been a little bit more emphasis put on our unique and sometimes very strange history in this county. As such, we went out on on Saturday evening, I about said Friday, I apologize, on Saturday evening, myself and Kimberly Marie Bishop and Anita Higdon and DJ Henderson went out to the Murder and Mayhem Tour hosted by the show's friend, Jeremy Elliott, who was recently on, as well as Daniel Main, who will be on in the near future. And we experienced this very unique tour of the capital of Washington County, Indiana, uh, the county seat, as it were, Salem, Indiana, and this cool tour all about the history of murder and mayhem around the square in Salem, Indiana. This is year two, and I can tell you guys from being there both years that this year was fantastic. Daniel Main did a great job. And we're going to present tonight a recording of Daniel Main telling a story about the Salem Apothecary I think you guys will appreciate as a ghost story that was a bonus for his tour and his tour only. None of the other guides told this story. So this is super special and very, very, very unique uh, for the tour that we got to be a part of. The other thing that happened this year is that you guys may or may not be familiar with a character on YouTube named the History Mystery Man. The History Mystery Man has dived deep into several subjects that I find very unique, obviously, to our region, but very unique in general as a storyteller, including the story of the Borden Museum, which you guys should definitely check into. And we're going to get into that that story in the future uh, with an episode about Prince Matic and the Giants of Indiana uh, and the Welsh settlers of Indiana. Uh, so the History Mystery Man this year teamed up with Bill Nicely, another friend of the show, at the Salem Speedway for the first ever, hopefully what will become an annual, Ghost Walk of the Salem Speedway. Now, this didn't turn out to be really a paranormal-style ghost walk where he was telling ghost stories. But what he was doing was he was telling the stories of the tragedies that have happened throughout the years at the Salem Speedway. So included in tonight's show is his stories about Turn 1 at the Salem Speedway. Turn 1, Race 1, Heat number 1, Double Tragedy. I mean, honestly, if you're looking for a place where something weird might happen, that would be where it was. We went on this tour at 10 o'clock at night after they got done with their racing on Saturday. And I will tell you that there was a lot of sort of uh, charged air in the arena, as it were. Uh, we did not include a story here from Turn 2, which maybe in future episodes, if we have his permission, we might include. But I can tell you that Kim and I had a very particular feeling 
around turn two when he told a very specific story, which hopefully we'll be able to air in the future. Nonetheless, tonight we bring to you a couple of field recordings featuring one our from friend the Murder and Daniel Mayhem Tour and again. one from the Salem Speedway Ghost Walk featuring the History Mystery Man. Now, I will tell you guys up front that neither of these two recordings are the best recordings I've ever made. These were recorded off of our field recorder, our little task game that we carry, out, carry around to special events. There's a lot of background noise, especially in Daniel Main's part, where you're on the, the public town square. You're going to hear a lot of vehicles go by. You're going to hear diesel engines. You're going to hear audience noise. You're going to hear all that stuff. All right. It's not going to be probably... <clears throat> The most pleasurable experience you've ever had listening to a podcast. I won't lie about that. But I do think that their cultural significance and the fact that it's a moment captured in time, for me, that represents art. That represents a little bit of history of my community. And it represents a little bit of the feeling that Kim, myself, Anita, and DJ had, as well as DJ's daughter, Mia, as we were going on these tours. It's a very unique moment in time and something I thought you guys might appreciate. All of this said as well, when it comes to the Salem Speedway Ghost Walk, one of the really interesting things is that during the Ghost Walk, and I'm a bit of a superstitious person anyways, I'm sure you picked that up during the show, I couldn't help but think that there had to be some amount of maybe negative karma that would come up on the racetrack uh, because it was a long weekend of racing, Saturday and Sunday, right? And there's always a little piece of me that's like, maybe it's not great to mention these stories before you have a race the next day or a series of races the next day. Interestingly enough, on Sunday, the day after the ghost walk, there was a wreck at Salem Speedway. There was a wreck on turn one, and that's why we chose the turn one story to share here with the history mystery man during the ghost walk at Salem Speedway. Uh, a car ended up going off the track and went through the wall on turn one. Luckily, the driver was not killed. Now, I do not currently know his status. I'm not a huge racing fan. I don't keep up with these things. Uh, but it sounds like everything all together, all things considered, all the safety mechanisms... They all worked the way that they were supposed to work, and the guy that went uh, went through the wall at the Salem Speedway on Sunday seems to be okay. And I can tell you this too: uh, I saw the pictures post wreck of everyone reacting to the wreck, and the first person that you see in those pictures, or one of the very first people you see in those pictures, is Bill Not Nicely, who is the owner of the Salem Speedway. Um, he was one of the first people on scene. And I know Bill well enough to know that he cares very much what happens to his racers. And it was, it, it, as somebody that went to school with Bill, for me, it was incredibly uh, heartwarming to see he cares that much. And I know he does. But it is interesting to think, hey, that's the first real, like, major wreck that's happened in a very long time. And the fact that it happened in turn one. The day after the ghost walk is kind of an interesting fact, right? So guys, go check out the History Mystery Man. Next year, make plans to go out to the Salem Speedway. It's a great time for the whole family. If you don't go out for anything else, then hopefully next year they'll do the ghost walk again. We hope to see you there. Make sure you go see the Murder and Mystery Tour in Salem, Indiana next October. They're also doing a Ghosts and Goblins Tour 
of the Salem Square next year with Daniel Main and Jeremy Elliott. And I can't wait to see what they come up with for that one. So hope you guys enjoy this bonus episode. I love you guys. Happy spooky season. I hope you're making great plans for Halloween. And hey, I'm just going to be a little controversial here. Go and watch Halloween Ends. And if you don't like it, I'm not sure we can be friends. I'm just saying it's a good movie. You just got to look past what you think of as a Halloween movie. Love y'all. Later. So this is the only ghost story on this tour that I'm going to tell it. Um, this is Salem Apothecary. It's a pharmacy. It also happens to be the place that I'm employed. I do the home medical equipment here, so oxygen, wheelchairs, hospital beds, that sort of thing. I've been working here for five years. But this building has been here, as you can see, for over 140 years now. When it was first built, it was an apothecary, and that's what it's been the entire time it's been here. It's never been any other type of business. Just so happens, also, the first licensed female pharmacist in the state of Indiana, her name is Des Rudder, and she owned and operated this place back in the early 1900s. If you noticed, up where we started, in that parking lot on that wall, there's a big mural of the women from this, the history of this, the women from the history of this community. She's one of them that's up there. Now, Des Rudder went to Purdue University which happens to be the alma mater of the dear, wonderful woman who owns and runs the place now, Rebecca Marshall. So they have that in common. And uh, Rebecca's a huge history buff. She loves the history of this. Now, Des did not pass away in this building. In fact, she lived to a ripe old age and passed away in one of the local nursing homes. But nonetheless, we're pretty sure that she haunts this place to this day, and I'm going to tell you the reasons why, all of which I have witnessed with my own two eyes and my own two ears. Rebecca, usually in the morning, shows up before everybody else to unlock the building, turn the lights on, get things ready before the rest of us show up for the work day. And almost every morning, and I've been here on occasion and I heard it too, but almost every morning, she will hear footsteps going up and down on the back steps or on the third floor there's nobody else in the building, it's completely empty, just her. Another thing that happens frequently, in the back we have an old hand-operated freight elevator that we use to get large pieces of equipment from the basement to the second floor or wherever it needs to go. The only way to operate that is by a rope, it's in the pulley system. Frequently, we'll be in the back at work and all of a sudden you'll hear that freight elevator just going up to the third floor on its own. There's nobody pulling anything. It's just going on its own. Another thing that, this happens every day, every single day, at least once, I promise you. And I'm not telling you a lie. And I'm not even that superstitious about ghosts and things, but I promise you this happens every day. On the back of this building, down in the alley, there's a door that enters into the basement of the apothecary. And it's where it's usually the employees park and we'll come in through that way or whatever. But it's locked. In order to get in, you've got to push a button, which sounds an alarm up here on the main level. That alarm is the Purdue fight song. You place it twice through. I hate that song. <laughs> so you have to push that button. And when, when we hear the Purdue fight song, whoever's up here will go to the back of the pharmacy 
where there's a button we can push to unlock the door. There's also a video screen there that we can see who's coming in to make sure we want them to come into the apothecary. At least once a day, that alarm goes off. Here comes the Purdue fight song. And one of us, whoever's closest, will go back to the button in the video screen and we'll start to push the button and we'll look up and there's nobody there. We always say, as just Des wanted to hear the Purdue fight song. <laughs> Another thing that happened to me one time, I've been here five years, so this has been about two years ago. We had a young lady that worked uh, with Rebecca in the back as a pharmaceutical tech. And one day it was just Rebecca and that girl and myself in the building. And I was down in the basement working on some piece of medical equipment. I forgot exactly what I was doing. But I was standing at my workstation down there fixing something. When somebody, I heard somebody coming down the steps, which are just right there next to where my workstation is. I hear them coming down the steps. I don't really pay attention. And they turn, and I look up just as I see our pharmacy tech, the back of them, go out the back door of the basement, and it shuts behind her. Now, as soon as that door shuts, I just happen to be finished with the task at hand. So I stop what I'm doing, and I go up the steps, only to walk into the pharmacy and see the pharmacy tech and Rebecca standing there having a conversation. <laughs> there was nobody else in the building. So... We believe the Death Sweater haunts this building because we encounter her in some manifestation just about every single day. The next story I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell from right here because it has to do with this section of the square. In 1860, a man by the name of Levi Wright, he is the former county sheriff, but as long as he's given up those duties, he's become somewhat of a kind of a wild personality. He likes to party. And one night in 1860, he is down over in the parking lot that we're going to pass here in just a minute is Johnson's Saloon. And Levi Wright has been in Johnson's Saloon that evening just having a grand old time. In fact, he's had a little bit too much of a good time at this point. He has passed out on the saloon floor. Everybody else is just going on with their business, kind of walking around and we're stepping over him. In 1860, Dawson Lyon has just um, inherited this entire section of the square from his father. Now, Dawson Lyon is where we get the name. This is called the Lion's Block. It's also where we get the name of our local mascot, Salem Lions, okay? So Dawson Lion has inherited this section of the square <clears throat> and he's torn down all the long structures that comprise this section of the square at that point. And he's begun erecting this massive three-story building which extends all the way from Market Street down to the corner. This one huge structure. He's almost done with it. All the walls are up, the support beams, everything is completed except the roof. This night in 1860, a huge storm sweeps through Washington County. When the storm hits the square, it rips the entire top two stories of the north section of the structure off of the foundation and sends it crashing down onto Johnson Saloon, where it literally obliterates the saloon structure, mashing it into the ground. Miraculously, all the men that are in the saloon escape without harm and they rush out onto the square here. Coming to meet them are several townsfolk who have witnessed what's just happened and they come to see if they can help. The men start to, start to take inventory of themselves and discover there's somebody missing. It's Levi Wright, who is still passed out on the floor of the saloon. So in a panic, everybody rushes back down to the rubble and they begin removing debris, but they're expecting the absolute worst. 
There's no way you can survive this. In a few moments, they uncover Levi Wright, who was still lay right where he had been, right between two huge support beams that have been ripped off of this building here and missed him narrowly on either side. I'm fine, what'd you do? <laughs> Levi Wright stands up from the room, he brushes himself off, and he says, What the hell's the matter, boys? Let's have another drink! <laughs> Everyone bursts into laughter. They're so relieved that he has not been harmed. Unfortunately, before the month ends, Levi dies of internal injuries that is sustained in the accident that he was not even aware of. Come this way, and I've got another story about Johnson. It's a happy story. <laughs> Sorry for the delay, everyone. I know it's been a long day. It's cold and you've been here. I appreciate you guys hanging on for this. Uh, welcome to the first annual exclusive. By the way, I don't have a microphone, obviously, but I do have a big mouth. Uh, I, I just don't want to compete with voices. Uh, I've been chatting all day up there, so if we could keep it to a minimum in terms of our chatter, that would be really helpful. Uh, I'm the History Mystery Man on YouTube. I would be grateful if you would subscribe to my channel. Uh, if, if you want to, if you don't, that's okay too. Uh, we call this the annual ghost walk, and who knows, it might be the only one we ever do. I don't know. I don't know what my future is next year. Uh, but I call it a ghost walk, but I'm not sure what it is. I'm just going to tell you what happened here, and you can decide if it's spooky or a ghost walk or whatever you want. But I did live on this property for two years by myself. Yeah, I did live on this property for two years. Uh, and I was by myself a lot. And I don't know if you've ever been here at night by yourself on this 55-acre property. But yeah, it does get spooky. I would hear noises out here, and I'd come. And usually I heard noises because it was kids running around on the track, you know, that sort of thing. Because uh, it's not exactly hard to get into this place. But there were times when I poked my head out the door, and I didn't see anything. I don't know if I was just trying to scare myself or what. But, um, I would hear things from time to time. I didn't know what it was. I know when the wind would blow here, these aluminum grandstands would clang and rattle. They are freaky. Oh my God, they are yes. spooky scary. But uh, um, I did what I did a lot at night here is I would walk the track by myself trying to scare myself. I'm too chicken to jump out of an airplane, so this was my thrill. I'd walk around here at night thinking, well, maybe the ghost of Bob Swigert is going to come get me or something. If he was coming after me, I wanted to get him over, wanted to get it away with early and just come and get me, you know. So, um, but it did get creepy here at night. Um, my, my, my interpretation of the track is what I know about this track. My first time here was 1968. Uh, I have eyewitness reports that come from a very good friend of mine, World War II veteran Jack Bills, who attended every race here from June 1947 through 1972. He was here. And part of this tour is his. The focus of my tour will be the 11 fatalities, driver fatalities, that happened at this track. There were three spectator fatalities as well. I'm not going to go in depth on those. We'll mention them later. Uh, but again, the focus of my uh, uh, tour would be the driver fatalities that happened here since uh, 1947. I will point out real quick 
Uh, there are only two original buildings left on the property that were here in the original construction of 1947. The two restrooms, I don't think you're using them right now, are you? The two old block restrooms out here, the block buildings, they are original to the property. The ticket office next door uh, looks pretty original, but it did come a few years later. Those two restrooms are the only original uh, buildings uh, left on the property. So what I want to do now is I want to march down to turn one and stop. And I'll keep you there for just a little bit. All right, part two of this tour. Here goes. Part two of this tour. Now, a few more people to catch up. Um, so the, the track is the brainchild of Salem, Indiana. James Summers was his name. He wanted to build a replica of Winchester Speedway, but the only difference is he wanted to make his track a dirt track. He wanted to keep it dirt. He did not want this pavement, the original owner, um, although it was changed, obviously, over the years, but he wanted, that was his dream to keep this place dirt. Now, the first race, so they went to work on it right after World War II, all through 1946, and got it ready for June 1947. Opening day, June 22, 1947. They did not get off to a good start, unfortunately. They had sprint cars that day, uh, open-wheel race cars, on those skinny hard tires, no roll cages over the car. They didn't have the roll bar yet behind the guy. They were just open, you know, on leather Cromwell helmets, goggles, and mobile oil t-shirts. They were really seriously exposed. It was an incredible era. I mean, can you, well, you can't see the drivers today. Can you imagine being able to see the expressions on their face as they're coming? It was so colorful and it was just incredible. Anyway, they got off to a terrible start here at Salem Speedway on June 22, 1947, the first race. First heat race, first lap, first turn. Clay Corbett, the local hot shoe from Dayton, Ohio, not local, but he was the hot shoe of the day, started last because he was the fast qualifier. He wanted to lead the thing in the first turn, I guess. He charged all the way through the six-car pass. He got to the lead guy, Jack Schultz, who was a World War II veteran, and he got underneath him, but he couldn't hold it because he was on the gas too much. Clay Corbett slid up into Jack Schultz. They connected and both tumbled. Uh, Schultz went right, poked the hole right through the fence. It wasn't much of a fence. And Clay Corbett tumbled no, over the fence in his open wheel car and down the embankment. They said Clay Corbett died en route to the hospital. He was actually dead before he left. Jack Schultz, the World War II veteran, was paralyzed from the chest down. He did not deal with, well with that illness and struggled with his mental illness from that point uh, forward. He could never quite get past what happened that day. He lingered for four years and he himself died of, uh, some say, depression. But uh, uh, So essentially, in the first lap, in the first turn of the first race here, we had a double fatality. Tommy Hennerschitz, the Flying Dutchman from Reading, Pennsylvania, went on to win the race that day. He was a dirt track expert from out east. Remember, back in that day, people came from all over the country for the opportunity to race here. It wasn't just Indiana and Kentucky and Ohio. They literally came from all over. This was, at one time, the road to the Indianapolis 500. If you wanted to be the next Kyle Larson, you had to come here and prove yourself. That's just the way it was. Uh, one other incident here in turn one, the very first ARCA race on October 10th, 1955. Ray Duhigg, 
from my hometown of Toledo, Ohio, driving a convertible ARCA stock car, blew a right front tire coming into turn one. The car skidded up the embankment. He tumbled down the other side and was crushed beneath the car. He did not survive even uh, a trip to the hospital. And that was the first ever ARCA race here, and there's been since, what, 108 since. Uh, also in turn one, a name you may recognize, I don't know, I referenced him earlier, Bob Swiker. Bob Swiker was an amazing man, just incredible. And talk about coming from all over to race here. He was from Los Angeles, California. He was a California kid. Brutally handsome. His wife was movie star gorgeous, Dolores Dory. She died just a few years ago. He was a mechanical genius. Unfortunately, he lost his life here on June 17th, 1956 right here um, and you know he had just won the 1955 Indianapolis 500 he was literally on top of the world as the spring season came to be in 56 he appeared on the front cover of Sports uh, Illustrated which was the magazine to be on in that day uh, interestingly enough he was not only a great race car driver he was a mechanical <coughs> genius a week before the Indianapolis 500 in 1955, the same Indy 500 that Bill Vukovic lost his life, uh, Bob Swikert practicing a week before the 500 in his pink front engine John Zink Roadster uh, did not like the sound of his engine or the way it felt and it kept eating away at him and he couldn't take it anymore. And three days before the Indianapolis 500, Bob Swikert parked that car, that race car in the garage, took the motor out himself disassembled the engine and fixed what he thought was wrong, put the engine back together and put it back in the car and three days later in that car won the Indianapolis 500. Comes here a week later. Getting, well, not a week later. Um, but you're, you're, you're getting there. Um, but, but can you imagine an IndyCar driver today? Uh, well, first of all, he wouldn't get close to his engine. The engineers wouldn't let him. And if he even got there, he wouldn't have a clue what to do. But that's the genius of this man. But it was a year later that he raced here at Salem Speedway. He, died, he won the 555. He died here a year, a year later, June 17, 1955. What cars were they racing here? Sprint cars. He was in a yellow number one. And again, turn one, the trouble area. He was racing alongside a driver named Ed Elysian. Some say there was contact. There was no contact. Bob Swiker just got that car loose. And it started doing this. And he chased it. And he chased it. <coughs> finally got into the fence here, tumbled over the fence. He may have, remember, no roll cages. He may have survived, but unfortunately at that time, Salem Speedway was lined with big old oak trees back there, and he came against an oak tree and busted his skull in two. Again, the newspapers wrote he died en route to the hospital. Uh, he did not. He was dead before he'd gone. My friend Jack Bills helped carry him out. They carried him over the wall right here into a, a waiting ambulance here. It was diagonal on the track about in the middle of the track right where we are and it was one of them old station wagon type ambulances that had the double doors in back you know and they were in a hurry to get Bob Swiker the driver was in a hurry to get him there because they thought maybe I can save this guy's life he was surely already gone uh, but unfortunately in the driver's haste as he mashed the gas, the rear doors were not yet secured, and Bob Swigert on his stretcher gurney came right back out onto the racetrack, top onto the racetrack. That's a fact. It's a story that's not been told. Um, 
Yeah, it absolutely happened. And at that, you know, if you have a problem on the racetrack today to get the big sheet and the blanket, they're not going to show you what's going on. Back then, they didn't cover it up. The whole grandstand was sitting here watching this whole thing happen. Is that still with the leather helmets? Oh, yeah, yeah, which did him no good that day. I'm not sure a real helmet would. But so he had the stretcher incident. Further, just a week later, Bob Swikert, I'll rewind just a little bit, right before the this race, he built a brand new built-in swimming pool at his home on Lancelot Driveway in Indianapolis, Indiana. A brand new swimming pool for his wife and four children. On top of the world, a swimming pool he built under his direction. And he put up a fence, a wood fence, all the way around a little privacy fence, most likely. And then the day before the day he died here, he was finishing up that fence, and now it's dark, he's in the 11th hour, he's gotta go, and he left a section about as wide as me open. His plan was to finish it the day after Salem. He left a, a, a portion of the fence open. Well, a week after he died here, um, two little kids, uh, James Tomlinson, five, his little brother Anthony Tomlinson and their dog, they took off on their tricycles back in the era when their mom could send the kids off and they didn't worry about them like they do today. They sent them off, they didn't come back. And she's going, wow, it's been too long for these little boys. She went out looking, uh, their mother did, and she came upon Swikert's home a block away and uh, saw their tricycles in their driveway with their faithful dog, Rover, laying by the bicycles, waiting for those kids. Where are they? She ran in the backyard through the hole in the fence and found her children at the bottom of Bob Swikert's pool. They, they did not survive. The car that Bob Swikert died in um, had a long life, believe it or not. It was rebuilt and soon became a, a car that uh, Stan Bowman drove from Covington, Kentucky, a name that was really starting to come up in motorsports. Uh, he had just won his first USAC sprint car race at Eldora, beat Foyt, Andretti, all the big guns, and he was on his way to the Indy Leagues, uh, and he was driving that car that Bob Swiker was killed in. His axle broke in hot laps at Terre Haute, the front end dug in, he tumbled in those old open wheel contraptions over the fence and died. Um, there was one more driver that died in the car in a race. I don't have his name, but there was one more fatality in that car. One final note on Bob Swiker in that car as it passed on through the ownership uh, with new owners. It was traveling down the road very close to here. Uh, with their open trailer in tow. They got a flat tire on the tow rig. The gentleman uh, got out to change the tire and was struck and killed by a motorist from that car. So that, 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 I guess, I guess you could say that and get away with it. Is that car, is it in 500 Museum, the car? No, his John Zig Pink number five Roadster that he won the 500 in is in the museum. But nobody knows what happened to that car. I, I've tried to find out. I don't know where it is. Uh, but but uh, that that story stretched on forever, Bob Swiker. But what, what what an amazing man he was.